Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the magnificent USA. Today is the 25th day of January and the year is 2021. Now, I'm going to get right back into what we've been discussing. And I think you, if you've been listening to me, are aware of the fact that we've been covering some hormonal regulation as well as lipid modifications associated with the immune response in aging. And we've been doing this for a long time. And I think this is probably lecture 16 or 17 in the series. But this is what I call sequence three, where I'm connecting um, some of the canonical hormones generated in the central nervous system and how corruption of hormonal stimuli, particularly downstream from the initial phase of induction, can lead to metabolic rearrangement that can lead to a dystrophy and then to a disequilibrium. And finally, to a major global systemic dyslipidemia, which is associated with modifications in lipid metabolism in T lymphocytes, which can then function to induce a pro-inflammatory response. This occurs in the central nervous system. It can lead to one of two um, disease phenotypes. One is neurodegeneration. And in the elderly, we see this in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and prefrontal dementia. Or it can lead to oncogenesis. And the major um, presentation for that is, of course, megablastoma. So we're going to um, depart from that specific discussion right now because I want to get back into what I spoke about earlier in the, I guess it would have been in the fall, about sphingolipid metabolism, lipid rafts, and the NPY locus, because there's a connection here. All right, so let's get started. And remember, I'm doing this because I have nothing better to do. Although uh, I was listening to Mozart and writing something for authentic biochemistry, but now that I'm finished with that, now I have nothing better to do. All right, now let's get back into discussion here. Remember, we're doing some biological psychiatry because uh, we're, we're leading up to major morbidity phenotypes, pathophenotypes, pathobiochemistry in the elderly, okay? This is one of the windows into that uh, disease state. <clears throat> so psychological stress as such, as, as such can occur with fear or anxiety um, can be linked to an intracerebroventricular CRF infusion. And this is done in the animal models, obviously. What happens when you infuse CRF into the ICV you elicit a switch from goal-directed cognitive processes, which are mediated somewhat specifically by the medial prefrontal cortex, to a rather than dorsolateral striatum-dependent reverse learning. Now, we talked about this last time, so it should be just a recapitulation. Now, combined with this, you have observation indicated under conditions of low stress with moderate levels of CRF and the uh, locus coriolis, you have an associated enhancement of this uh, extended environmental shifting response. 
such that you get, it's called extra dimensional shifting, where there is a specific presentation of activity around the individual, but a nuanced new material event is added to that system. And the response to that new event, such as a stressor, can be measured in animals and also can be measured in, um, well, for example, psych graduate students under certain kinds of experimental conditions. So when you get moderate levels of CRF in the LC, that's associated with an enhanced extra-dimensional shifting response. And you get what's known as basically, when it works well, an optimal executive functioning. However, a severe stress associated with very high levels of CRF, that's corticotropin releasing factor, remember, and as it accumulates in the locus coriolis, can contribute to a shift from the optimal executive function, which of course is necessary for goal-directed behavior, toward a more habit-forming behavior. And that switch is probably adaptive in a certain stressful, threatening environment where a goal-oriented long-term behavior is going to be inefficient or even dangerous. And the fallback to a well-established habit will allow you to process new information. Okay, now if you can follow along, so this is how they study things in biological psychiatry. I told you that you have to get used to this nuanced sort of experimental design as well as um, conceptual framework. Now, LC neuronal recordings during attentional set shifting performance has revealed the stress renders the LC neurons more sensitive to reward during one of those intradimensional set shiftings, and which is associated with reverse learning, such as you're used to having a stimulus give you a response, but then because there is an intradimensional set shifting, which is associated with the extra dimensional ability to measure shifting, right? Because it's intra now, because it's within a specific setting that has now been set up. I look at this as a similar thing to chromatin remodeling. Um, you have to be able to respond with reversal learning. And that and an action that did not diminish with repeated trials is what you see when you link that CRF response in normal physiological conditions. So what these results suggest is that stress will bias circuits that increase more of a reward salience. Remember, salience is a salient feature is something specific and like an outlier in the, from the background. So an increase in reward salience in part due to this elevated locus coriolis first expressing high levels of CRF and then signaling through norepinephrine. Okay, so fear learning is a rapid and persistent process, of course. So it's going to promote defense against threats. It's going to reduce the need to relearn about danger. That's the whole idea of fear conditioning, fear conditioned learning, right? However, it's also very important to be flexibly capable of readjusting fear behavior when given circumstances change, even ones that seem like pattern repetitive. So indeed, there's, if you have a failure to adjust that changing condition, it can contribute, according again to this literature, anxiety disorder, right? Anxiety generally discussed in 
psychiatry and psychology is having a, an uneasiness about something that isn't specific, but a general uneasiness or um, contemplative miasma is the way I would put it about life in general, right? So that's called general anxiety disorder or GAD, right? I published a paper on this a couple of years ago, a review article. And I won't get into the details of that, but there are probably a hundred different genes that are involved in um, potentially generating that GAD presentation, okay? So it's very complicated. Like all these biological psychiatric conditions, there is never just one gene involved or even even a cluster of genes. There's an interactome of tens or even up to hundreds of genes that produce a um, pathophenotype that then appears to co-present with the psychiatric condition. And as I've been saying on and on and on, my theory is that the agent responds, so free will is the, is the initiator of all agency and activity. And then subsequent to that, immediately subsequent to that, are all of the florid and plenum of biochemical phenomena that alter cell phenotypes and then respond correctly in sequelae. Okay, so let me continue on here now. A central but neglected aspect of this fear modulation is, of course, the ability to flexibly shift fear response from, a, from let's say, one stimulus to another. If I like, for example, once threatening stimulus became safe or a once safe stimulus all of a sudden becomes threatening, right? Now, in those situations, the inhibition of fear right? The ablation of the fear response and the development of other kind of fear reaction have to co-occur. And they're going to be directed at different physiological targets requiring some kind of accurate response. So it's going to require precision and accuracy in these fear learning, fear conditioned learning responses according, again, to biological psychiatry. So there's a development of fear reactions, but they're directed at different targets, and they require an accurate responding under even continuous, say, low-level stress. And imagine as you're aging, these responses are coming to you, perhaps even at an accelerated rate, depending on how your lifestyle is, but your ability to deal with these unconditioned yet fear-provoking responses becomes debilitated over time. And that what I'm trying to explain to you is all of the, again, florid and plenum of biochemical and uh, physiological responses that go awry with that response to the environment. So you want to be able to track dynamic shifts and uh, study it in humans, of course, from fear to safety, and then back from safety to fear, when any of these transitions are going to be occurring co-simultaneously, because that's what real life is. So you can use functional neuroimaging to study this. Uh, you can do um, blood panels to look at different stress response compounds like cortisol or CRF. You can even measure um, various 
uh, sedimentation densities of cells in the blood, such as red blood cells, erythrocytes, of course, lymphocytes. You can subclass the lymphocytes into T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. You can look for acute responses. You can look for complement in the blood. All of the things that might um, be associated with a fear response. But now I would argue a stress response is what it is. So how you get from a stress response, such as overexertion, to a fear response, such as hearing a, a bear make a sound in the woods right behind where you're camping, those differences in, in the um, taking in that sense data and then translating that into output may be very similar biochemically and physiologically. But the reasoning behind those responses, of course, is going to be unique. That's why patterns are necessary to keep in the flow of experience and danger for um, removal from a, an ability to get damaged or killed. However, at the same time, following patterns, when patterns often can be, give you mixed signals, um, the higher order brain executive decision processing has to be able to dissect and um, focus in on which of those stimuli are the most important to deal with. And those are the things which degrade over time, all subsequent to, first of all, the, the presentation of a signal, and then the perception of the signal, and then all of the downstream processing at the biochemical and physiological and even molecular genetic levels. Okay. So the idea is that the amygdala and the striatal responses can are, are considered to be able to track a fear predictive stimuli, but you have to be able to flexibly flip those responses from one predictive stimulus to another. And prediction errors are going to be associated with reverse learning correlated with this striatal activation. This is what's been found in animal models. And of course, it's been extrapolated to humans. So what this suggests is that fear needs to be, the response to fear needs to be readjusted to appropriately track environmental pattern signals and the brain mechanisms underlying that flexible control, which is the response of either fight or flee, and that's the norepinephrine locus, okay? So this is basically what how they, how they envision it. And I'm just giving you that background. Now, Let's jump ahead to a paper published in the International Journal of Molecular Science not very long ago, November of 2020. So it just came out uh, a couple of months ago. Now, what does this paper tell us? This is a new um, window into this phenomenon. They tell me that persistent fear and avoidance of the potential for fear-associated events are going to be common presentations for what's known as social anxiety disorder or SAD. <laughs> I love the acronym. And that actually, the SAD is the second most common anxiety disorder after general phobia disorders, okay, according to this current literature. Now, this is an avoidant behavior that maintains the social anxiety disorder and therefore it prevents the reversal of fear in social situations. So now they're mixing anxiety with fear. Now, I wouldn't do that because my definitions of anxiety and fear are different. For one thing, it's metaphysical anxiety, which just means not being able to predict the future. And that's how we always live. 
we're always living um, basically in the uh, uh, present perfect sense, something we just did, but we're constantly being promoted into the near future, right? And because of that, I think all human adaptation to the environment, internal and external, that is dealing with your affective, as well as your pathophysiological responses internally to yourself, and then all the external stressors. I see that as a phenomenon that is constantly poising the individual to have to deal with a response that is unknown. And that it leads to a possibilistic future rather than a probabilistic future so that you don't lead to pattern recognition down a road that can cause failure. Okay. If that makes sense. So what I'm saying is that metaphysical anxiety is different than what they talk about in um, psychiatry and psychology. The kind of anxiety you're talking about in psychology and psychiatry is more again associated with fear or a general miasma or, or feeling of, um, not being prepared for things occurring and therefore um, having that become a pathology on your affect and on your agency, okay? And whereas fear, I think, is more episodic and very specific. I fear the sound of a horn uh, from a car right behind me because they might be uh, beeping their horn and tell me to get out of the way. Or I get a fear when I hear a cougar growl up on the mountainside when I'm walking by it, right, in the dark, or, or a snake hiss. That's a very specific fear that's linked to a very specific stressor. So I see fear as specific and anxiety as nonspecific. But what they're trying to tell us here is they think that there's a lot of crossover. So we'll let them do that, okay? That's what these people are trying to tell us in this paper. Now, what they're going to tell us is the best treatment outcomes currently for the social anxiety disorder is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that includes what I'm sure most of you have heard. It's called exposure therapy. Uh, that is, you're going to get exposed to something that makes you feel anxious. And over and over again, they're hoping you get a gradual decline in the response because you're getting repeated exposure to a fear, a, a scary situation. And therefore, uh, over time, you will able to extinguish that via executive decision-making, extinguish that anxious response. That's called fear or anxiety extinction, okay? So this kind of psychotherapy is often combined though with what's really a crude pharmacotherapy. And that includes this whole constellation of drugs, antidepressants, including some benzodiazepines, beta blockers, anticonvulsants, neuroleptics, and of course, a whole plethora of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And those seem to be, interestingly enough, some of the best pharmacotherapy, the SSRIs or the NSRIs too. And we already talked about norepinephrine and we already talked about serotonin. So you know where they lead into this discussion at the biochemical level. Hopefully you remember that. And if not, don't worry, we're gonna talk about it again. Now, this paper tells us that many social anxiety disorder patients fail to respond to a uni, uh, unilateral therapy of either CBT or pharmacotherapy. So they need sometimes both. So that leads to a constant interest in this scientific community to find new candidates to be able to uh, pharmacotherapeutic or cognitive therapeutic or direct psychological counseling to be able to 
relieve some of this um, torpor in sad patients, right? Because they don't respond very well to CBT or pharmacotherapy, apparently. So neuropeptides are claimed to be a viable research candidate because it's known that they have a role in social behaviors and stress-related behaviors in animal models. I have to emphasize that because that's where most of this preliminary non-clinical research is done, of course, in animal models. Now, our old friend NPY, neuropeptide Y, has come into the fore here. Now, that is a 36 amino acid peptide, and it's abundant, it's widely distributed in the mammalian brain and even in the periphery. So NPY, when it is expressed in the brain, it is, seems to be associated with social, social behavior and that entire fear circuitry, something called the Pepez circuit, which I'll talk about, uh, I think, today or maybe next time. Um, that's kind of the, the canonical, classical kind of fear um, circuitry I'm talking about. But what is it involved? What we are? What what nuclear domains in the brain? The amygdala. So the, these are all well known to you. Amygdala, hippocampus, the septum, the periactoductal gray, the locus coeruleus, the cerebral cortex, the basal ganglia, the hypothalamus, and indeed even the thalamus. Okay. So biological effects of MPY are going to be mediated through five different types of G inhibitory protein coupled receptors in the membrane. And those five different types are named Y2, Y1, Y4, Y6, and Y5. I didn't give those a straight um, linear uh, increase in alphanumerical presentation because the ones I mentioned in that order are the ones that are, are more significant. And we'll talk about them, don't worry. So NPY and its receptors regulate a host of physiological responses, blood pressure, bioenergetics, neuroendocrine hormone response, neuronal excitation, and an even neuroplasticity, including epigenetic mechanisms. We, and again, we've talked about this, if you remember. So this was way back when I was talking to about leptin appetite suppression pathways, talking about adipocytes generating the, uh, the adipokine leptin binds to its receptor, in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, and the leptin receptor will positively cause the expression of POMC and CART. Now remember, POMC is pro-opio-melanocortin. Remember, that's a polyprotein complex transcript. It's broken up and made those various proteins like MSH, right? And then catholins and endorphins. So Leptin will positively generate in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, POMC, and another protein called CART. Now, we haven't talked about CART since probably last summer, but I'll remind you that that's the cocaine and amphetamine-regulated transcript. And basically, CART is a satiety factor. It's closely associated with the action of leptin and, indeed, with NPY. And so it's an anorectic peptide because it has to do with satiety, Right. So it inhibits both normal and a starvation-induced feeding response. And because it completely blocks the feeding response induced by NPY, and it, since it's regulated by leptin, it's all part of that hypothalamic arc, okay? Right. Now, what's negatively regulated by leptin, okay, as you might guess from just that uh, discussion I just left you with, in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus is NPY, 
and the agouti-related uh, protein, or the AGRP, right? Remember those? Way back in the summer, we are talking about the feeding response, because we're, then we were on a kick about obesity and how that leads to poor health, right? We get back to that often because a lot of humans are overweight, and a lot of diseases are linked to obesity. So it's a, that's why it's found in the literature. And that's also why it's good to talk about. And plus, because obesity is linked with uh, dyslipidemia, I'm a lipid biochemist, it allows me to get into all of lipid metabolism, and you know I cannot pass that up. Anyways, NPY, more about it. It's a neuropeptide, widely expressed in the CNS. It influences all those responses I just told you about, including them also. And we did talk about these. Um, cortical, that is prefrontal cortical excitability, the stress response, which is how we're leading into it here, food intake, because if you get MPY expressed or AGRP, it's going to increase the appetite, okay, in uh, in, in the uh, induction of the appetitive response from the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. Now, leptin is going to block that. Remember, leptin blocks that because leptin is generating the adipocyte generating a signal saying the adipocyte is signaling to the central nervous system, no more need for calorie intake, right? It's basically what it means. Now, back to this NPY, okay? It's going to be regulate food intake. Intake NPY is going to increase appetite. Um, it's going to regulate circadian rhythms. That's what we talked about before, cardiovascular function, not so much, although I did talk about tonicity. Um and basically, it works through G-protein couple receptors, I just said. It's going to inhibit the adenylate cyclase, so it means it's not going to make cyclic AMP, but it's going to activate mitogen-activated protein kinase. That's MAP kinase. Therefore, because of that, it's going to regulate intracellular calcium, and it's going to activate ultimately and finally, for, for just this brief discussion, potassium channels, because that changes the polarity of the membrane, Okay, which means an entire alteration of not just the movement of ions across that membrane, but neurotransmission, right, in general. So that hopefully will get you to where NPY is. Now, um, I don't think I want to talk to you about the OB gene and about leptin here, because I think it's going to get us way far afield. But let me just say that leptin, remember, that's the adipokine that's generated from the adipose tissue that reads that the adipose is signaling that it is actively synthesizing triacylglycerols, actively taking up glucose via insulin-dependent pathways, right? And so when it's in full range in that, leptin is generated, goes to the central nervous system into the hypothalamus, and it regulates not only that, but also regulates the immune function. And it does so via the CNS and indeed even directly on immune cells because it expresses high levels because it, it, um, because leptin in circulation will induce the expression of the leptin RB, okay? So leptin, that, that's the receptor. So leptin regulates the activity because of that, because this is on neuropopulations as well as on uh, uh, cell populations from the immune uh, lineage. You get this huge neural activation in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, Remember that it's going to inhibit the orexigenic NPY, AGRP neurons, but it's going to stimulate the anorexigenic POMC neurons. And leptin is also going to act on all kinds of other brain regions. So leptin is a key player here because uh, leptin resistance becomes important in obesity. 
Okay. You thought you heard about insulin resistance. And I'm telling you that there's leptin resistance. And I talked a great deal about this in my summertime lectures. In fact, some of them are even video lectures. I went back and looked to see where they were in my catalog and they are. So you can go back and listen to those. Um, so we're well into NPY. And I don't think I want to go further today because we're already almost out of time. Let me see if there's one other key feature I can tell you. Um, okay, so hypothalamic AMP kinase dominant negative isoforms will decrease the expression of the orexigenic neuropeptides like AGRP and NPY in the arcuate nucleus. Okay, so that's when you get dominant negative isoform of that protein, the AMP kinase, it will decrease the expression of NPY. Okay, so therefore the overexpression of AMP kinase or a constitutionally active AMP kinase elevates a fasting induced expression of the AGRP and the NPY in the ARC, as well as the expression of melanin concentrating hormone or MCH, okay? So AMP kinase, of course, modulates, therefore, the expression of NPY and proopiomelanocortin. And it does it through the regulation of autophagy in the cell. So I'm going to leave you with that and uh, get back to a further discussion uh, of all of this. And we're going to link now with ceramide, our friend, the sphingolipid ceramide, in the very next lecture. Uh, I had to get to this point so we could talk about ceramide, which is coming right up. But for right now, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 25th of January saying bye for now.